Hi, listener. This is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favor of meaning, purpose, and unity as a whole. So, I'm going to do the fifth episode of reading from Synchronicity and A Causal Connecting Principle by, by C. G. Jung. And. What this means for alchemy, I have shown in some detail in my psychology, psychology and alchemy. Jonas Kepler thought in very much the same way. He said so, he says in his Tertius Intervenius to Beans. Hmm, I feel like I've already read this. Yeah, I have. Concerning Concerning the astrological character, i.e. astrological synchronicity, Kepler says, this character is received not into the body, which is much too inappropriate for this, but into the soul's own nature, which behaves like a point for which reason it can also be transformed into the point of the confluxus radiorum. This nature of the soul not only partakes of their reason, on account of which we human beings are called reasonable above other living creatures, but also has another innate reason, enabling it to apprehend instantaneously, without long learning, the geometrium in the radius, as well as in the vocibius, that is to say, in musica. Thirdly, another marvelous thing is that the nature which receives this character M also induces a certain correspondence in constellationibus, coalescibus in its relatives, in its relatives. When a mother is great with a child and the natural time of delivery is near, nature selects for the birthday an hour which corresponds on account of the heavens, from the astrological point of view, to the nativity of the mother, mother's brother or father. And this non-qualitative said astronomical et quantitative, quantitative, which means, and this in the um, footnote, in De Natalia, Natalitia into those positions presiding at birth, if in die is construed as German. Indeed, in the Natalitio, in the day of birth, the words in D construed as Latin. Okay, so fourthly, so well does each nature know not only its character. Durum calisturum, but also the celestial configurations and courses of every day that whenever a planet moves de presenti into its characteris, ascentim or locu precipua, especially in, into the natalitia, natalitia. It corresponds this way and is affected and stimulated thereby in various ways. I'm not sure exactly what I'm saying, but it seems to be suggesting that the souls on, on a soul level, the mother and father and the child to be, know the astrological significance of the time and place of birth even if on an ego level they don't know, perhaps on a level beyond it they know. And that seems to be what Kepler's saying, or maybe I'm completely misunderstanding here. If my interpretation is correct, then this would align with what David Wilcox says in the Synchronicity Key. If you have a look at the episodes if you ever look at the episodes about um, the afterlife, which I highly recommend, it's really interesting, at least to me, I, I really enjoyed reading it.
right. Kepler supposes that the secret of the marvelous correspondence is to be found in the earth because the earth is animated by an anima tellurus for whose existence he adduces a number of proofs. Among these are the constant temperature below the surface of the earth, the peculiar power of the earth soul to produce metals, minerals and fossils, namely the facultas form matrix, which is similar to that of the womb and can bring forth in the bowels of the earth shapes that are otherwise found only outside, ships, fishes, kings, popes, monks, soldiers, etc. Further, the practice of geometry, for it produces the five geometrical bodies and the six cornered figures in crystals. The anima tellurus has all this from an original impulse, independent of the reflection and ratiocination of man. The seat of astrological synchronicity is not in the planets, but in the earth, not in matter, but in the anima tellurus. Therefore, every kind of natural or living power embodies a certain divine similitude. Oh, well, I have to say, that's an interesting perspective that Kepler has. Now, I don't agree that it's just the divine in the earth, but certainly Gaia, Mother Earth, is conscious, conscious being, and has provided for us um, so and certainly there is a correspondence as below, so above, as above, so below, as within, so without, as without, so within. There is that correspondence and there is a divinity in the form of Earth. And in fact, you could say certain places, like including Stonehenge and various other places, there are nodes connecting, connected by ley lines to other nodes, which are effectively like chakras of the Earth. And yeah. Such was the intellectual background when Gottfried Wilhelm, Wilhelm Helm von Leibniz, 1646 to 1716, appeared with his idea of pre-established harmony, that is, an absolute synchronism of psychic and physical events. This theory finally petered out in the concept of psychophysical parallel, parallelism. Leibniz's pre-established harmony and the above-mentioned idea of Schopenhauer's that the unity of the primal cause produces a simultaneity and in interrelationship of events, not in themselves causally connected, are at bottom only a repetition of the old peripatetic view, with a modern deterministic colouring in the case of Schopenhauer and a partial replacement of causality by an attescendent order in the case of Leibniz. For him, God is the creator of order. He compares soul and body to two synchronized clocks. Footnote. G. W. Leibniz, second explanation of the system of communication between substances. The philosophical works of Leibniz, a selection translated by G. M. Duncan, New Haven, 1890, page 90 to 91. Quote, from the beginning, God has made earth of these two substances of such a nature that merely by its following particular laws received with its being, it nevertheless accords with the other, just as if there were a mutual influence or as if God always put his hand there to, in addition to his general cooperation, end quote. As Professor Pauli has kindly pointed out, it is possible that Leibniz took his idea of the synchronized clocks from the Flemish philosopher Arnold Gulenix, 1625 to 1699, in his Metaphysica Vera, part three. There was a note, Octavia Scientia, Opera Philosophica, The Hague, 1892, volume two, page 195, which says, page 
296, quote, okay, but that's Latin. I'll, I'll read it out. Horo, horog, horologium voluntatis nostri quadret cum horologio motus in corpore, corpore. The clock of our will is synchronized with the clock of our physical movements. Another note, page 297, explains voluntas nostra nullum habet influxum causalitatem determinationem aut efficientiam quamunque in mutum cum cogitanes nostras bene executumus nullum apud not nos evenimus idem su notem determinationis. Okay, I'm not reading all of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, I, I, and if you speak Latin properly, if you've actually learned how to speak it properly, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry for what I just did. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Okay, let's go to the translation, okay? Our will has no influence, no causative or determinative power, no effect of any kind in our movement. If we examine our thoughts carefully, we find in ourselves no idea or concept of determination. There remains therefore only God as the prime mover and only mover because he arranges and orders movements and freely coordinates it with our will. So that our will wishes simultaneously to throw the feet forward into walking and simultaneously the forward movement and walking takes place. A note to Nona Scientia adds to page 298, and I'm only gonna do the translation here. Our mind is totally independent of the body. Everything we know about the body is already in the body, therefore, before our thought, so that we can, as it were, read ourselves in our body, but not imprint ourselves on it. Only God can do that. So, what, comes to me about that i mean it's not necessarily meant in a panpsychic or pan pan physical you know it's like you know panpsychic or pan deistic way but it could be interpreted that way because if you look at what he said it's the God is involved in every move we make, right? If each soul is source, then that statement would be true. And also our mind being independent of body would be true, well, except for that while in incarnation in 3D, what we experience is affected by limitation and thus isn't as pure as that. Although that's changing now, especially since uh, yesterday, the 21st. It's the age of Aquarius. Yeah. So, okay. Next page. So, where was I? He compares soul and body to two synchronized clocks and uses the same simile to express the relations of the monads and entelechies with one another. Although the monads cannot influence one or monads, whatever you want to call it, cannot influence one another directly because as he says, they have no windows, footnote, oh, bracket note, relative abolition of causality. They 
footnote. Uh, Monodal, monadology, Leibniz's philosophical writing selected and translated by Mary Morris, Every Man's Library, London, 1934, page three. Quote, monads have no windows by which anything could come in or go out. Thus, neither substance nor accident can enter a monad from without. Is a monad an octave? Here's the thing, if everything's fractal, no, I don't buy that. I don't, I mean, certainly I would say that as with every, since it's all fractal, every density is an octave of a subdot density in every octave is a density of a larger octave. And that's only looking at it in a, that's only looking at it in a sort of two dimensional way, or maybe even a one dimensional way, because it's looking at going up and down, right? The truth is, that this system of octaves and densities, this sort of fractal nature of reality happens in infinite dimensions, which means that we only perceive it, it goes beyond 3D. It's like, imagine a, an infinite dimension shape that repeats itself in fractal, you know, like those diagrams that show fractals that move, you zoom in or zoom out and you keep seeing the same patterns repeating. It's like that, but if you take a triangle and just keep repeating it again and again and again, forming the same sort of shapes or pentagram, whatever, you, you, you get these shapes repeating and you just do that, but you just make it at least 5D which would be a bit challenging, but yeah. Anyway, so he seems to be making a relative abolition of the idea of causality. Honestly, he's saying, it depends what he means by a monad. And I have to admit, well, I could actually look up a monad actually. Um, that would probably help us, see what comes up. I definitely know the term. He seems to be using it like, a, he's talking, it's like he's talking about a closed system, but I'm not sure if that, I mean, there's also the programming version of it, it seems, but that's not what's being referred to here. An elementary individual substance that reflects the order of the world from which material properties are derived. And from which you material reflects the order of the world as above, so below. It actually seems kind of similar to a holon as referred to by I can't remember the guy. Gordano Bruno in some book said that it described three fundamental types, God, souls, and atoms. The idea of monads was popularized by Leibniz. In his system of metaphysics, monads are basic substances that make up the universe but lack spatial extension and hence are immaterial. Each monad is unique, indestructible, dynamic, soul-like entity whose properties are a function of its perceptions and appetites. You know, that sounds awfully like a soul. Sounds like you are that, and I am that. Soul-like entity whose properties are a function of its perceptions and appetites. 
And if everything is built from that, then reality is shaped by that. Sounds like a lot of attraction to me. Monads have no true causal relation with other monads, but are perfectly synchronized with each other by God in a pre-established harmony. And if they're all God, they're all in a harmony on different levels of Godhood and different densities and so forth. Uh, I would say that there's a certain parallel here with Yeah, there's a certain parallel here with the law of one. And, you know, interestingly, there's a learn more section below in this botanica.com uh, where it says, Western philosophy, the rationalism of Spinoza and Leibniz. And Spinoza is interesting because Spinoza does seem to have a pan-psychic perception of things. You know, I really should look into Spinoza, actually. Um, because Spinoza might be a good source for me to read into, perhaps. I don't know. All right, all right, back to synchronicity. Back to synchronicity. Sounds like a title or something. Okay, so they're constituted, so so constituted that they are always in accord without having knowledge of one another. He conceives each monad as to be a little world or an active indivisible mirror. For some reason, something sprang to mind and it was a cell dweller song called, I can't remember what it was called, but I think it was like my own little world or something like that. Hmm. So, Jared. Not only is man a microcosm in closing the hold in himself, but the entelechi, or monad, is in effect such a microcosm. Each simple substance... Each simple substance has connections which express all the others. Well, this is basic hermetic principles passed down from ancient times, which I'm sure they must have been aware of on some degree, in some degree. It is a perpetual living mirror of the universe. He calls the monads of living organisms souls. The soul follows its own laws and the body its own likewise. And they accord by virtue of the harmony pre-established among all substances since they are all representations of one and the same universe. Well, in a sense, in my opinion, souls are all extensions of source, in a sense, and bodies are all extensions of the holographic universe, in a sense that souls are all the creator, the universe, and the hologram is all the created. We are not the created. Our bodies are, our flesh suits, but we are not the created. We are the creator. The soul follow, quote, the soul follows its own laws and the body its own likewise. And they accord by the virtue of the harmony pre-established among all the substances since they are all representations of one and the same universe. This, quote, end quote, this clearly expresses the idea that man is a microcosm. Souls in general, says Leibniz, are the living mirrors or images of the universe and created or and created. The living mirrors and images of the universe of created things. He distinguishes between minds on one hand, which are, quote, images of the divine, capable of knowing the system of the universe and of imitating something of it by architectonic patterns, each mind being as it were a little divinity in its own department, end quote. Well, yes. And the bodies on one hand, on the other hand, which act according to the laws of efficient causes by motions, end quote. 
while the souls act, quote, according to the laws of final causes by appetitions, ends, and means, end quote. In the monad, or soul, alterations take place whose cause is the appetition. What is appetition? I'm going to find out what appetition is. Don't mind me. A desire, a desire or craving towards a specific object. So desire. So alterations in the soul or monad take place based on desire. And you could also say that on the level of source as a whole within an whole octave changes occur based on desire and reflecting that perhaps changes in the universe not what you could say around us but also maybe around that we observe as the universe changes in that occur manifesting alterations in the overall um, hierarchy of connected souls which are ultimately all one of the octave so and then perhaps when all of the experiences all come back to source, that source uses that in its journey to go up in density. As one first density soul of the next density and starts and carries on going up. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. The passing state, which involves and represents a plurality within the unity or simple substance is nothing other than what is called perception, says Leibniz. Perception is the inner state Plurality within unity. That's what substance is to him. Perception is the inner state, is the quote, inner state of the monad representing external things. And it must be distinguished from conscious apperception. Okay. Perception is not the same thing as conscious apperception. Quote, for perception is unconscious. Herein lay a great mistake of the Cartesians, that they took no account of perceptions which are not apperceived. The perceptive faculty of the monad corresponds to the knowledge and its appetitive faculty to the will that is in God. Okay, so... That was a quote. No, it wasn't a quote. Yeah, so I am reminded of an episode I did with... Should really find it. The one about mentalism that I did with David Karasek. Yeah. In that episode, I do talk about, it is mentioned that perception is kind of unconscious. That perception is unconscious and that there's a more conscious way of grappling with the world that doesn't depend on fundamental 
negative beliefs that we are brought up to believe in. Yeah. It is clear from the quotations that besides the causal, the causal connection, Leibniz postulates a complete pre-established parallelism of events, both inside and outside the monad. The synchronicity principle thus becomes the absolute rule in which all cases are where the inner event occurs simultaneously with the outside one. As, as against this, however, it must be borne in mind that the synchronistic phenomena, which can be verified empirically, far from constituting a rule, are so exceptional that most people doubt their existence. They certainly occur much more frequently in reality than one thinks or can prove, but we still do not know whether they occur so frequently and so regularly in any field of experience that we could only speak of them as conforming to law. Well, not scientific law, at least not yet, but hermetic law, for sure. But we understand that Jung wasn't working on hermetic law. He might have explored it, but he ultimately was at least attempting the scientific method. And I'll say he was doing the scientific method in his own way. And there's a footnote here. I must stress again the possibility that the relation between body and soul may yet be understood as a synchronistic one. Should this conjecture ever be proved, my present view that synchronicity is a relatively rare phenomena would have to be corrected. Well, there you go. We only know that there must be an underlying principle which might, which might possibly explain all such related phenomena. The primitive, as well as the classical and medieval views of nature, postulate the existence of some such principle alongside causality. Even in Leibniz, causality is neither the only view nor the predominant one. Then, in the course of the 18th century, it became exclusive, the exclusive principle of natural science. With the rise of physical sciences in the 19th century, the correspondence theory vanished completely from the surface and the magical world of earlier ages seemed to have disappeared once and for all until towards the end of the century the founders of the society for psychical research indirectly opened up the whole question again through their investigation of telepathic phenomena the medieval attitude of mind i've described above underlies all the magical romantic procedures which have played an important part in man's life since the remotest times the medieval mind would regard Ryan's laboratory arranged experiments as magical performances, whose effect for this reason would not seem so very astonishing. It would be interpreted as a transmission of energy, which is still commonly the case today. Although, as I have said, it is not possible to form any empirically verifiable conception of this transmitting medium. Now, this may well be the case, although I can't say for sure that it's the case that it can't be scientifically proven. But certainly, if it can't be, we still know that it is. I, am, I imagine, I mean, I don't know what you believe if you're listening to this, but yeah. Um, I certainly think that it's a transmission of energy. All right. <clears throat> I need hardly point out that for the primitive mind, synchronicity is a self-evident fact. Consequently, as this stage at this stage, there is no such thing as chance. No accident, no illness, no death is ever fortuitous or attributable to natural causes. You know, I've noticed something, and it's something I've noticed before. It's the idea that, let, let us use Jung's phrase, phrasing here and say, he started off in the primitive, and at the primitive, At the primitive stage, there was a belief in synchronicity and magic. Now, eventually, we got to the point where we stopped believing in that. And eventually, we got to the point beyond that where we became more conscious and we started believing in it again. And I feel that there's this tendency where as you go up in consciousness, there, there's this sort of repeating, like a, like a, a 
graph just going up where there's peaks and troughs, but just goes up. And, or you can picture it like a spiral moving up. Now this spiral essentially, you get a to and fro effect where I feel that as you get more conscious, you start off going more in the sort of mystic direction and then you go a more grounded direction. And then you go a more mystic direction, then a more grounded direction. Um, this might be related to spiral dynamics, actually. So that might be a puzzle piece connection to keep in mind. Oh, I haven't done an episode on spiral dynamics yet, have I? Hmm. So, I mean, if you look at spiral dynamics, uh, People don't know what it is, right? And I have to go into exactly what it is. And I'm doing going over synchronicity here. So, um, but yeah, I would say there's this tendency between one aspect of higher consciousness and another. So you will start off with, there's, there could be a primitive, a primitive, inverted commas consciousness then a more intellectual a primitive consciousness that's more right brain then a left brain more intellectual consciousness then a more right brain but super conscious conscious all right that's enough dwelling on that but hopefully you got something from that No accident, no illness, no death is ever fortuitous or attributable to natural causes. Everything is somehow due to magical influence. The crocodile that catches the man while he's bathing has been sent by a magician. Illness is caused by some spirit or other. The snake that was seen by the grave of somebody's mother is obviously her soul, etc. On the primitive level, of course, synchronicity does not appear as an idea by itself, but as magical causality. This is an early form of our classical idea of causality, while the development of, the, of Chinese philosophy produced the con connotation of the magical concept of Tao, of meaningful coincidence, but no causality-based science. Synchronicity postulates a meaning which is a priori in relation to human consciousness and apparently exists outside man. Footnote. In view of the possibility that synchronicity is not only a psychophysical phenomenon, but might also occur without the participation of the human psyche, I should like to point out that in this case, we should have to speak not of meaning, but of equivalence of or conformity. Hmm. Such an assumption is found above in all the philosophy of Plato, which takes for granted the existence of the of transcendental images or models of empirical things, the forms or species, whose reflections we see in the phenomenal world. This assumption is not only represented, no, this assumption not only presented no difficulty to earlier centuries, but was on a contrary, perfectly self-evident. The idea of an a priori meaning may also be found in the older mathematics, as in the mathematician Jacobi's for paraphrase of Schiller's poem, Archimedes and his pupil. He, phrase it, he praises the calculation of the orbit of Uranus and closes with the lines, what you behold in the cosmos is only the light in God's glory and the Olympian host number eternity reigns. Interestingly, Herschel, the guy who discovered um, um, Uranus. I, I think he didn't live that far away from where I live, so yeah. The great mathematician Gauss is the putative author of the saying, God does arithmetic. The idea of sync. wait, did I? No, no, I didn't skip anything. Footnote. But in a letter of 1830, Gauss said, we must in all humility admit that the number is merely a product of our mind. Space has a relative reality outside of our mind. Well, sure. 
I mean, we're only seeing a simplification of it until we can see 5D, which I'm sure some listeners might even be able to do that. As for me, I'm getting there. Um, I'm getting there. Herman Weyer likely takes number as a product of reason. Marcus Vieres, on the other hand, inclines more to the platonic idea. All right. The idea of synchronicity and of self-subsistent meaning, which forms the basis of classical Chinese thinking and of the naive views of the Middle Ages, okay, seems to us an archaic assumption that ought at all costs to be avoided. Though the West has done everything possible to discard this antiquated hypothesis, it has not quite succeeded. Certain mantic procedures seem to have died out, but astrology, which in our day has attained an eminence never known before, remains very much alive. Nor has the determinism of a scientific epoch been able to extinguish altogether the persuasive power of the synchronicity principle. For in the last resort, it is not so much a question of superstition as of a truth which remained hidden for so long because it had less to do with the, the physical side of events than with their psychic aspects. It was a modern psychology and parapsychology which proved that causality does not explain certain class, a certain class of events, and that in this case, we have to consider a formal factor, namely synchronicity as a principle of explanation. For those who are interested in psychology, I should like to mention here that the particular idea of a self-subsistent meaning is suggested in dreams. And uh, I would add in um, psychedelic experiences, such as, um, Who's that guy who actually analyzed his psychedelic experiences? I've, I've gone blank right now. I mentioned it before. Once when this idea was being discussed in my circle, somebody remarked, quote, the geometrical square does not occur in nature except in crystals, end quote. Crystals, eh? Crystals, crystals, crystals. Wouldn't Karen be proud? No, okay, crystals are actually, um, the thing about Karen's being liking crystals, I mean, they're actually onto something. Uh, yeah, crystals are kind of alive and they do have this divine ge geometry to them. Well, does everything, I guess. Actually, no, not everything does, but, oh. A lady who has been present and had the following dream that night. In the garden, there was a large sand pit in which layers of rubbish had been deposited. In one of these layers, she discovered thin, salty plates of green serpentine. One of them had black squares on it, arranged concentrically. The black was not painted on, but was ingrained in the stone, like the markings in agate or gate. Similar marks were found on the two or three other plates, which Mr. A, a slight acquaintance, then took away from her. But according to the rules of dream interpretation, this Mr. A would represent the animus, who, as a personification of the unconscious, takes back the designs because the conscious mind has no use for them and regards them as lusus naturali. Another dream motif of the same kind is the following. The dreamer was in a wild mountain region where he found contiguous layers of Triassic rock. He loosened the slabs and discovered that his bound, to his boundless astonishment that they had human heads on them in low relief. This dream was repeated several times at long intervals. But note, the recurrence of the dream expresses the persistence attempt of the unconscious to bring the dream content before the conscious mind. Cool. Now let me reflect on a dream I had when I was a kid. So, I, there was this, there were these stairs 
in my house with a gap down the middle between the banisters. It was only a small gap, but in the dream, it was a large gap that seemed to golf disproportionately. You know how things morph in dreams. And for some reason, I used to jump down there. But I didn't jump down there in some sort of attempt to harm myself. And I didn't jump down there. Out of fear, I don't think. I just casually, exploratively, perhaps, or I don't know the reason. I, I just jumped down it. And I fell and fell and fell and landed in my bed. And then this was a repeating dream. I used to do this. I don't even know how many times I had this dream. And if it repeats, then something was being flipped forth my dream. And in the comments, if you've got any idea what that might mean, I mean, I'd be curious because I've never known what that dream meant. Anyway. Another time, the dreamer was traveling through the Siberian tundra and found an animal he had been looking for. It was a more than life-size cock made of what looked like thin colorless glass, but was alive and just sprung by chance from a microscopic unicellular organism which had the power to turn into all sorts of animals, not otherwise found in the tundra, or even into objects of human use or whatever size. The next moment, each of these chance forms vanished without a trace. Here is another dream of the same type. The dreamer was walking in a wooded mountain region. At the top of the steep slope, he came to a ridge of rock honeycombed with holes, and there he found tiny, a tiny brown man of the same color as the iron oxide with which the rock was coated. The little footnote. Now nah, I'm bothered with that. The, the little man was busily engaged in hollowing out a cave at the back of which a cluster of columns could be seen in the living rock. On top of each column was a dark brown human head with large eyes carved with great care out of some very hard stone like lichenite. The little man freed this formation from the amorphous conglomerate surrounding it. The dreamer could hardly believe his eyes at first, then had to admit that the columns were con continued far back into the living rock and thus therefore have come into existence without the help of man. He reflected that the rock was at least half a million years old and that the artifact could not possibly have been made by human hands. These dreams seem to point to the presence of a formal factor in nature. They describe not just the lucis naturali, but the meaningful coincidence of an absolutely natural product with a human idea apparently independent of it. This is what the dreams are obviously saying. Footnote, those who find the dreams unintelligible will probably suspect them of harboring quite a different meaning, which is more in accord to their preconceived notions or opinions. One can indulge in wishful thinking about dreams just as much as one about anyone or anything else. For my part, I prefer to keep as close to the dream statement as possible and try to formulate it in accordance with manifest meaning. It proves impossible to relate this meaning to a conscious, the conscious situation of the dreamer. If it proves impossible to relate this meaning to the conscious situation of the dreamer, then I frankly admit that I do not understand the dream, but I take good care not to juggle it in, into line with some preconceived theory. And what they're trying to bring nearer to the consciousness through repetition. Okay, this is what the dream draw is saying and what they're trying to bring nearer to the consciousness through repetition. Although I had the thought of like ancient aliens where what I was like, the living rock, um, the columns were continued far back into the living rock and must therefore come into existence without the help of man. I, I, I don't know if his dream was suggesting ancient aliens. I, that seems a bit questionable to me, but who knows? Who knows? Ancient astronaut theory. It's not those I believe in. Chapter four, conclusion.
I do not regard these statements as in any way final proof of my views, but simply as a conclusion from empirical premises which I would like to submit to the consideration of my reader. From the material before us, I could derive no other hypothesis that would adequately explain the facts, including the ESP experiments. I am only too conscious that consynchronicity is a highly abstract and irrepresentable quantity. It describes to the moving body a certain psychoid property which, like space and time, which, like space, time, and causality, forms a criterion of its behavior. We must completely give up the idea of the psyches being somehow connected with the brain, and remember instead that meaningful or intellectual behavior of the lower organisms, which are without a brain. Here we ourselves, here we find ourselves much closer to the formal factor, which, as I've said, has nothing to do with brain activity. If that is so, then we must ask ourselves whether the relation of soul and body can be considered from the relation from this angle. That is to say, whether the coordination of psychic and physical processes in a living organism can be understood as a synchronistic phenomenon rather than as a causal relation. Well, I would say that makes sense. I would say that there's a synchronicity between physical hologram and the divine of which soul is that and we are. I would say that and we, we people sense things in their gut, they we have neurons in our hearts, we We have a, a spine with neurons there and it's all connected up, right? And we have nerves all over our body. So this suggests to me that this is true. Both Gurulanics and Leibniz regarded the coordination of the psychic and the physical as an act of God, of some principle standing outside empirical nature. The assumption of a causal relation between psyche and physis, physis leads to, on the other hand, to the conclusions which it is difficult to square with experience. Well, experience that we got used to, I suppose modern experience preceding the awakening. Either there are physical processes which cause psychic happenings, or there is a pre-existent psyche which organizes matter. Well, I'd go the latter, right? In the first case, it is hard to see how chemical processes can ever produce psychic processes. And in the second case, one wonders how an immaterial psyche could ever set matter in motion. It is not necessary to think of Leibniz pre-established harmony or anything of that kind, which would have to be absolute and would manifest itself in universal correspondence and sympathy, rather than the meaningful coincidence of time points lying on the same degree of latitude in Schopenhauer. The synchronicity principle possesses properties that may help to clear up the body-soul problem. Above all, above all, it is the fact of causeless order, or rather of meaningless, pardon me, or rather of meaningful order, orderedness, that may throw light on the pan, on the psychophysical parallelism, the absolute knowledge which is characteristic of synchronistic phenomena, a knowledge not mediated by the sense organs, supports the hypothesis of a self-subsistent meaning, or even expresses its existence. Such a form of existence can only be transcendental, since, as the knowledge of future or spatially distant events shows, it is contained in a psychically relative space-time, that is to say, an irrepresentable space-time continuum. It, it may be worth are while to examine more closely from this point of view certain experiences which seem to indicate the existence of psychic processes in what are commonly held to be unconscious states.
Here I'm thinking chiefly of the remarkable observations made during deep syn synocopes resulting from acute brain injuries. Contrary to all expectations, a severe head injury is not always followed by a corresponding loss of consciousness. To the observer, the wounded man seems apathetic in a trance and not conscious of anything. Subjectively, however, consciousness is by no means extinguished. Sensory communication with the outside world is in a large measure restricted, but is not always completely cut off. Although the noise of battle, for instance, may suddenly give way to a solemn silence. In this state, there is sometimes a very distinct and impressive feeling or hallucination of levitation. The wounded man seemed to rise into the air in the same position he was in at a moment he was wounded. If he was wounded standing up, he rises in a standing position. If lying down, he rises in a lying position. If sitting, he rises in a sitting position. Occasionally, his surroundings seem to rise up with him. For instance, the whole bunker in which he finds himself with finds himself at that moment. The height of the levitation may be anything from 18 inches to several yards. All feeling of weight is lost. In, few, in a few cases, the wounded think they are making swimming movements with their arms. Oh, that's kind of quaint. There, there is any perception of their surroundings at all. If there is any perception of the surroundings at all, it seems to be mostly imaginary, i.e. composed of memory images. Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, those of us who believe in spiritualism are inclined to view this as the soul temporarily leaving the body of the returning. And in fact, whenever we die, this may well be the experience You have undoubtedly experienced this yourself. We all have, <clears throat> unless this is your first incarnation. Okay, where was I? Oh, I had some thoughts on the previous page. I don't really have anything to add to it. All right. During levitation, the mood is predominantly euphoric, buoyant, solemn, heavy, buoyant, solemn, heavenly, serene, relaxed, blissful, expectant, exciting are the words used to describe it. There are, the ver there are various kinds of ascension experiences. Jantz and Beringer rightly point out that the wounded can be roused from their syncope by remarkably small stimuli. For instance, if they are addressed by name or touched, whereas the most terrific bombard bombardment has no effect. Much the same thing can be observed by in deep comas resulting from other causes and would like to give an ample for, uh, I would like to give an ample, huh? Wow, I'm failing at speaking. I would like to give an example from my own medical experience. A woman patient who reliably, whose reliability and truthfulness, I have no reason to doubt. Uh, no reason to doubt. told me of that her first birth was very difficult. After 30 hours of fruitless labor, the doctor cons considered that a forceps delivery was indicated. This was carried out under light narcosis. She was badly torn and suffered great loss of blood. When the doctor, her mother and her husband had gone and everything was cleared up, the nurse wanted to eat and her patient saw her turn round at the door and ask, the patient asked, saw her turn around the door and asked, do you want anything before I go to supper? Supper? She tried to answer, but couldn't. She had to fear that she was sinking through the bed into a bottomless void. You know, I notice that my concentration seems to be lapsing here. So 
I will leave it at this, and the next episode will definitely complete it because we're at page 126, and this book finishes at 146. And that's only half a page. So, so yeah, so we're getting close to the end. And I, I think this was a good episode. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed this. Hopefully you did too. All right. Well, bye for now. <laughs>